0: Hello, my name is Ho Jun Yoon. You're listening to Medicine on the Way. It is August 2013. This is episode number 11, and today's topic is aortic stenosis. Aortic stenosis is narrowing of the aortic valve opening. There are two etiologies, and they are either congenital or degenerative aortic stenosis. A normal person has three cusps in aortic valve, so it is called tricuspid. When there are only two or one cusp, we call it bicuspid or unicuspid valve. These valvular defects seem to be autosomal dominant with questionable X-linked component. A mutation of the gene named NOTCH1, N-O-T-C-H-1, has been suggested as a genetic marker for aortic stenosis. Offspring of patients with a bicuspid valve has higher prevalence of aortic stenosis. Bicuspid valve has been more frequently shown with coarctation of the aorta and Turner's syndrome. There tends to be an intrinsic defect in the aortic root media and this may result in ascending aortic aneurysm. Even though it is congenital, symptoms of aortic stenosis usually develop in 50s or 60s unless it is very severe. The other group is degenerative aortic stenosis. Degenerative aortic stenosis is characterized by calcium deposit to the aortic valve. The mechanism of the calcium deposit is similar to that of arthrosclerosis in blood vessels. There are endothelial dysfunction, lipid accumulation, and inflammation with cytokine release. Throughout this process, fibroblasts in the valve phenotypically become osteoblasts producing calcium crystals and bone matrix proteins. Because of the similarity of the disease mechanism, we may think the risk factors of degenerative aortic stenosis is somewhat similar to those of arthrosclerotic diseases. They are smoking, hypertension, and hypercholesterolemia. In general population about 25% people has aortic stenosis after age of 65 and 35% after age of 70. Of these people 10 to 20% becomes aortic stenosis that is clinically significant. There are some other causes of aortic stenosis besides the congenital and degenerative types. Rheumatic disease can produce commissural fusion and calcification, which may make very difficult to differentiate from degenerative aortic stenosis. Radiation to the mediastinal region may result in late-onset fibrosis or calcification as well. Before we go on to the signs and symptoms of aortic stenosis, I want to talk about one thing from basic science. You may have heard something called the law of Laplace. This law frequently shows up in pulmonary physiology when we are talking about the wall tension. However, Laplace's law is also applied in aortic stenosis. In aortic stenosis, there is reduced blood flow from left ventricle to aorta. An obstruction of the blood flow occurs because of the narrowed aortic orifice area. Because blood flow is obstructed by the stenotic aortic valve, there will be more stress to the wall of the left ventricle. Initially, the left ventricle responds by dilating its space to reduce the stress. However, when the obstruction develops gradually over years, the heart adapts differently. Laplace's law explains the stress to the wall is conversely related to the pressure and the radius of the ventricle while inversely related to the wall thickness so the equation is like the stress to the wall equals to pressure times radius divided by wall thickness one way that the heart adapts to the increased stress to the ventricular wall is to increase the wall thickness Because the stress to the wall is inversely related to the wall thickness, we can reduce the stress by increasing the wall thickness. As a result, patients with aortic stenosis develop thicker ventricular wall or known as hypertrophy. Ventricular hypertrophy is an adaptive mechanism to the obstruction of the blood flow but it becomes problematic when the wall becomes excessively thick. Preload is the volume of blood that the ventricles receive before contracting. Preload stretches the ventricular muscles so they have some drive to contract. When the ventricular wall is excessively thick, there won't be much space for the preload, so you have impaired diastolic function. The hypertrophied left ventricle may be shown with normal ejection fraction. Even if there is an obstruction to the blood flow, preload is already low. Because what the left ventricle receives during diastolic phase is small, It doesn't have to pump much out to have normal ejection fraction. Therefore, patients with severe aortic stenosis may have normal cardiac output at rest. However, when they are exercising or doing any activity that increases oxygen demand in their body, the hearts cannot provide that much blood to the body. Another problem with hypertrophied ventricle is that it needs more blood to sustain its function. Because there are more muscle tissues, it needs more oxygen. However, like we just learned, the hypertrophied ventricle has poor diastolic function blood enters into the coronary arteries during diastolic phase. During systolic phase, blood is pumped into the system. During diastolic, when the aortic valve is closed, there is a backflow in the aorta which feeds the coronary arteries. Without proper diastolic function, blood flow In the coronary artery is compromised. As a result, we can expect ischemia, especially in subendocardium. Because of the obstruction of the blood flow, there is a different pressure above the aortic valve and below the valve. This pressure difference is generally described with the term pressure gradient. If the pressure gradient is more than 40 millimeter mercury, the symptoms of aortic stenosis typically develop. The surface area of the aortic valve is normally three to four cm square, and if the surface area decreases one third or quarter of the normal area, and that is less than one centimeter square. The symptoms of aortic stenosis occur. There are three typical symptoms of aortic stenosis, and they are exertional dyspnea, angina pectoris, and syncope. You can easily remember these three symptoms with a letter S: exertional dyspnea as a symptom of left ventricular failure, angina pectoris is substernal chest pain, and syncope is syncope. Exertional dyspnea develops because of the impaired diastolic function of the heart. The left ventricle is poorly relaxed and the pressure is accumulated to the pulmonary capillary. Angina pactoris develops because aortic stenosis has similar pathologic mechanism and risk factors as coronary artery diseases. Ischemia may occur because of left ventricular hypertrophy as we just discussed. Syncope is a light symptom. When the patient with aortic stenosis in any exertional activity the left ventricular pressure rises. The increased left ventricular pressure triggers peripheral vasodilation by the baroreceptors in the left ventricle. The peripheral vasodilation needs more blood flow and triggers the left ventricle system to rise again. However, because of the stenotic aortic valve, there is not much blood outflow and official cycles of increasing left ventricular pressure which again vasodilates the peripheral vessels which needs more blood flow so increases the left ventricular again but there is not good blood outflow because of the aortic stenosis eventually the blood pressure drops and a syncope occurs When we auscultate the patient with aortic stenosis, an early systolic ejection murmur is typically heard. The ejection fraction is heard best at the aortic area, which is the right second intercostal space. The murmur sound is transmitted to the neck or apex, and it may sound like mitral regurgitation. This confusing murmur in the apex is called galliviridine phenomenon. In a normal person, the aortic valve closes before the pulmonary valve, which creates the physiologic S2 split. In severe aortic stenosis, systolic phase of the left ventricle becomes longer. As a result, the S2 split is less likely to occur. In late stages of aortic stenosis, stroke volume decreases, which also reduces the systolic pressure. The peripheral arterial pulse rises more slowly, and we would appreciate this by feeling delayed or diminished carotid pulse. In elderly patients, their arterial wall wall may have been already stiffened, so we may mistakenly think they have diminished carotid artery pulse because of aortic stenosis when they are actually not. There are several diagnostic studies for aortic stenosis, but echocardiogram, Doppler study, is generally diagnostic. Echocardiogram can be done in either transthoracic or transesophageal approach. Echocardiogram shows ventricular wall function, wall thickness, and the aortic valve calcification. Doppler measures the aortic valve gradient by calculating the blood flow velocity through the aortic valve. Severe aortic stenosis is defined by a valve area less than one centimeter square, moderate aortic stenosis by a valve area of 1 to 1.5 cm2 and mild aortic stenosis by a valve area of 1.5 to 2 cm2. The valve gradient is high and that is higher than 40 mercury, when the patient becomes symptomatic. However, If cardiac ejection fraction is low with low valve gradient, we don't know whether the low ejection fraction is because there is a valve problem or cardiomyopathy. In this case, we can increase the cardiac output by giving a positive inotrope, such as dobutamine, and monitor the function of the heart with echocardiography. If the cardiac output increases with the valve area as well, a valvular defect is then unlikely. However, if cardiac output increases without any significant changes of the valve area, we know the valve is the problem causing the low ejection fraction. Electrocardiogram or EKG may show left ventricle hypertrophy or a possible ischemia with ST depression or T wave inversion. However, EKG findings are not correlated with the course or severity of aortic stenosis. Chest x ray may reveal enlarged cardiac silhouette dilation, or calcification of the ascending aorta or the aortic valve. Cardiac catheterization is now ordered less frequently, but it can be useful when the findings from Doppler echocardiogram are not very reliable. Catheterization is also useful when the source of blood flow obstruction is not the valve and you want to find it out. If your patient has more than one valvular disease, for instance, aortic stenosis plus mitral valve regurgitation, you want to measure the function of each valve separately, and cardiac catheterization can do this. If patient is asymptomatic but has severe congenital aortic stenosis, and you're expecting a percutaneous procedure, Catheterization can measure the function of the heart and do the procedures such as percutaneous aortic val- balloon of uh, alboplasty or balloon valvotomy. While measuring the function of the heart, catheterization can visualize the coronary artery as well to detect any blockage. There is an emerging role of BMP as a prognostic factor and BMP above 550 has been found to be associated with poor prognosis. For aortic stenosis, there are several treatment options, and before we discuss about the surgical procedures, let us first go over medical management. Strenuous activity has to be avoided for those with severe aortic stenosis. Nitroglycerin can be helpful to relieve angina from coronary artery diseases. Patients have to be well hydrated to to prevent significant cardiac output reduction. ACE inhibitors or beta blockers are considered safe to treat hypertension in asymptomatic patients. Although studies have not fully supported, many experts believe the lipid-lowering therapy with a goal LDL of less than 100 should be started in early stage of aortic stenosis. Statins are thought to slow the progression of the calcification Even if the lipid-lowering therapy seems not fully supported with the current studies, it is reasonable to consider the therapy for a possible concurrent coronary artery diseases. As a surgical treatment, aortic valve replacement is indicated when patients are symptomatic with severe aortic stenosis, again, that is, the valve area, less than 1 cm square, left ventricular dysfunction with ejection fraction lower than 50%, aneurysm of the ascending aorta, bicuspid valve or when patients are undergoing for a cabbage surgery. Asymptomatic patients with severe obstruction or calcific aortic valve should be carefully monitored for any evidence of worsening Left ventricular function with serial echocardiograms. Dobutamine stress tests may be necessary to clarify the ventricular dysfunction for those who are asymptomatic. Once aortic valve replacement is indicated, it is important to have the surgery before left ventricular failure develops because. Preoperative left ventricular function directly affects the long-term survival rate even after the surgery. With late-stage left ventricular failure, cardiac output and stroke volume declined and the pressure gradient of the aortic valve decreases as well. Surgery may be the only option for those who have poor prognosis with left ventricular failure after medical treatment. Therefore, surgery should be undergone while there is some cardiac function remaining. There are several types of valve and approaches to replace the aortic valve. The valve replacement can be achieved either by traditional open heart approach, where you would split the sternum and open the chest to expose the heart, or minimally invasive heart surgery, where the surgery is performed through a three to five centimeter long incision. The third approach, called transcatheter aortic valve implantation is done percutaneously in a way that is similar to cardiac catheterization, but additionally, you put a valve that is expendable. For middle-aged or young patients, mechanical valves are recommended because of its durability. However, using a mechanical valve requires concurrent anticoagulation therapy, and that is, for instance, maintaining your INR between 2 to 3 with periodic warfarin adjustment. Because the use of anticoagulant with a mechanical valve and the risk of bleeding, elderly patients are recommended with bioprosthetic valves that are from pericardium of either a pig or cow. Ross procedure is performed by replacing the aortic valve with a pulmonary valve and putting a homograft for the pulmonary valve. This procedure is not as popular as before because of the aortic regurgitation and dilation of the pulmonary valve autograft after the surgery. The Ross procedure is now just a viable option for aortic stenosis. Bentall procedure is used when there is a significant aneurysm in aortic root. This procedure replaces the dilated portion of the aorta with a synthetic sheath called dacron sheath, which looks like a hose and a valve can be put inside the sheath. In a procedure called wheat procedure, only the dilated portion of the aorta and the aortic valve are changed without manipulating the coronary arteries. The coronary arteries are attached to the native aorta between the artificial sheath and the replaced valve. Coming back to the transcatheter aortic valve implantation, there are two devices for this type of replacement approved by the FDA. One is used for limited cases when patients are at high risk with the other surgical approaches. The other device is basically on the trial. European countries are actively using this approach at the moment, yet the U.S. are taking conservative action reserving transcatheter aortic valve implantation for very high-risk surgical patients. Percutaneous balloon aortic valvuloplasty is a procedure in which a balloon is inserted to somehow stretch the stenotic valve. This procedure is considered for children or young adults with congenital aortic stenosis or elderly patients with preserved left ventricular function. Balloon valvuloplasty also works as temporary measure before the definitive surgical treatment. Okay, this is it for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe. My name is Ho Jun Yoon and this is Medicine on the Way.